This week, it's the wonderful Chantal Cody, OBE, founder of Rococo Chocolates and The Chocolate Detective. Chantal is a very special woman. And I'm so honoured that she went to some of the most painful points in her business journey. Places that actually triggered a lot of emotion for my own journey. And in this podcast, we share what the lows really feel like when your brand is taken away from you. And testament to women with grit and a foresight that they are more than just one chapter of the story. Chantelle talks about moving on to the next chocolate chapter and where she wants a chocolate industry that's fairer and a more ethical place. And you know what? Despite all the challenges that Chantelle's had, she faces into them with this inner light, with this strength, with this grit, and with a hope for the future. And that's something I'm holding on to. And I know this podcast will be a healing one, a positive one, and one full of chocolate magic. Enjoy. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down. Where we're going, you won't need to bring your frown. I'm Holly Tucker and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Back in 2006, I founded Not on the High Street for my kitchen table. And since then, I've gone on to launch Holly & Co., I'm the UK ambassador of Creative Small Businesses, and I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. My dream is to help everybody start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement. And in my view, the best way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to my favourite small businesses, entrepreneurs and those who simply inspire me and ask them to share theirs. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Chantal, it is a huge pleasure to meet you today. I was lucky enough to be given some of your exquisite chocolate eggs a while ago. And as you know, since then... I've been just a ridiculous fan of what you've created. Chantelle, welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Thank you, Holly. I'm really, really touched to be invited and I'm delighted to be here. Oh, it's going to be a goodie, I can tell already. I mean, chocolate's been part of your life now for 40 years. You're a chocolate pioneer and... This is one for the books. The only person to have ever been awarded an OBE for their work with chocolate. So not only is the OBE quite cool, but to be the only person ever awarded it. I mean, that must have been a thrilling moment. Well, it was. It was an absolute surprise to me when this all happened. I had no idea about it. In fact, a brown envelope came through the door and in it was stapled about four bits of badly photocopied paper. It said, if you were to be offered this honour, would you accept it? Because that's the protocol. I looked at it and I said to my husband, James, I said, look, it's a scam. I put it in the bin. (laughs) And he said, no, no, you didn't. I I don't think it is because he knew because he'd had to provide things like my passport and he'd been doing it completely secretly. Um, And he said, I I think you ought to fill it in and return it. (laughs) And I kind of forgot about it. So when when the announcement happened, you know, I had a little inkling, but it was a complete surprise. Thank 
gosh, you didn't put it in the bin. I'm going to start at the beginning, but I want to ask you a question before we do. I love that your business name is The Chocolate Detective. First of all, it's a brilliant name, but tell me why it is called The Chocolate Detective. As with all great names like that, they just pop up at a moment. And that moment was when I was in my shop with a friend who's a filmmaker and it was a terrible wet day and we were going in and out and I had a barber raincoat yeah and she was just laughing at me and she's saying you're the chocolate detective as I was coming in out with this (laughs) this raincoat on and and I said yeah that's brilliant and that was you know around the moment when I needed inspiration for something new so perfect timing But it's also, isn't it, about not only you being Inspector Gadget, but also the fact that you're fascinated with this 100% transparency. And I'd never really thought about it, but that you wanted to dig deeper into chocolate. Yes. And unfortunately, I can tell you that 100% transparency is a long way away because it's a very complicated world. But I think generally things are moving in the right direction. There's still some bad players, but I think it's better than it was. And that's your mission that you wanted to go on, to to try and do that. I'm going to come full circle right at the end of this podcast to something involving ponies and sailboats and things, but I'm going to wait to the end. So you're helping us find out more about the origins of chocolate and making chocolate as transparent as we can. But firstly, as I always do, I love this love affair that you've had with chocolate and your earliest memories, including a chocolate cake, that you often dreamt about chocolate, particularly when you were at boarding school as a child. So chocolate, has it always held an emotional connection for you? It always has. And I'm one of five children. And my parents were quite strict about what we ate. So whenever there was chocolate, I was tremendously excited and I would eat mine as quickly as I could. One of my sisters used to get her Easter egg and she would have a little bit and then she'd hide it. (laughs) I couldn't believe her (laughs) self-control. And it would annoy me because mine had gone. (laughs) I remember you also spoke about, I think it was your fifth birthday. And I I hate this bit. You'd assumed your parents had forgotten about your birthday. I don't think so. But we were travelling. Actually, I think I was six. We were on our way back to England from Ethiopia. And we were on a merchant ship. And we had to stop in Greece because it, it was Easter. And all the seamen wanted to celebrate their Orthodox Easter because it was a Russian ship. And we spent a few days there in a little youth hostel in rather cold weather. But it was it was a big adventure. And and that's where a freshly baked chocolate cake came out for you. Yes. I think they they found it from somewhere. I remember this chocolate cake and very thick Greek yogurt with that sort of crust on the top. How good. And why were you in Ethiopia? My father was a doctor and tropical medicine was his speciality. So although he did work in London sometimes there weren't that many jobs I mean I think now tropical medicine is something you find all over the world but then it tended to be more in the places where it started well that must have been 
a fascinating thing because you were born in Iran. And as you said, your father was a specialist doctor. And am I right in saying you moved to Iran, but you grew up in London. Is that right? From Iran, where I was born, we went to Brunei and then we came back to Ethiopia and then back to London. So in those early years, I was abroad almost all the time, I think. This is amazing. Did you, do you think that that affected you being brought up? Do you, I, I only say, cause I went to international school for a good eight years in Holland. And I always think that my time abroad, living abroad played a role in who I am today. 100%. And for me, the world was a big place and yeah. that was my normal. And I, I suppose I assumed everyone else had that experience. And of course, a lot of people don't. And a lot of their childhood, they might be in one location. I read that it was quite a creative household. Do you think it's the influences from being abroad, from different cultures? And what what would you say was your experience of that creative household? That's a really good question. I think my father, although he was a doctor, he also was an incredibly passionate person about music and art and food and wine and travel, language, all of those things. And my mother obviously also was. And so those were, you know, just part of our currency. And we didn't have a TV. We were encouraged to read books and to make things. And again, that just seemed quite normal. Yeah, isn't that interesting? I think about our youth today stuck on a screen, potentially in the same location, and it's quite opposite to how you were brought up. But when you were a little older, you went to art school in London and you studied textiles designs and you took a part-time job in Harrods Food Hall in the chocolate department. Tell me about that time in your life and what you learned from that experience. And I've only just recently been to Harrods Food Hall, which I hadn't been in, I have to say, in a decade. I mean, it is quite spectacular. And I went into the chocolate department, which is many years ago that you were in there. It is, it's, it's overwhelming, the smell, the cues, you know, the fanatics around chocolate. Tell me about that experience. It was really impressive, but obviously not like it is now because the chocolate world has changed so much, but they had the world's best chocolates and people would come and, and queue for hours to buy something like the Belgian fresh cream chocolates, which were the rage at that time. And it was amazing. I'd say to my my boss, because I got promoted to that counter because I was quite good at wrapping the boxes and doing the ribbons. And after people had been standing for nearly half an hour in the line and they get to the front, you'd say, you know, good morning, madam, sir, whoever it was, what can I get for you? They would always say, or almost always, can I have a mixed selection box of you know, a pound, half a pound, whatever it was. And I was thinking, why don't we have a few ready-made boxes so that they don't have to wait quite so long? And I said this to my boss and she said, oh, no, 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 we couldn't do that because they need to stand in that line. <laughs> and it's like this kind of torture. Why would you make people stand in that line? Obviously, it might be brilliant marketing because they've always got a queue, but it seemed very cruel to me. And in a way, that was the light bulb moment, which made me think there must be a different way of doing this and bringing joy and magic into the exchange of buying chocolate. 
Yeah, I mean, actually, it's quite a clever marketing thing, isn't it? I mean, if you're prepared to queue for half an hour, you're going to think that these things are the best chocolates ever. And am I right in thinking that your first customer was rather famous? Indeed. It was Michael Caine, and I didn't recognise him. Um, He was wearing a beautiful camel coat, which I'm sure is cashmere, and very, very elegant. And that that was because on the first day I was working on the the counter, which was basically selling Mars bars and things for the staff. And so all of the the lower-end confectionery was there. And what he wanted was milk tray. And he asked for the biggest box of milk tray that we had because that's what his mum loved. And it was her birthday. And obviously we could provide huge boxes of milk tray. And I was wondering why he would buy that, not something really nice, but I understand exactly why he wanted that. (laughs) But after he walked away, my my colleague said, oh, that was Michael Caine, that was, he always comes every year. (laughs) I can actually picture him, gorgeous cashmere camel coat and that voice, how brilliant. Mm. You had the light bulb moment in Harrods. Michael Caine was your first customer. It pictures that you're going to become a chocolatier. But very sadly, your dad had recently passed away and your mum mortgaged her house to support your bank loan that you needed. It must have taken you a lot of courage to make that decision, even though that you'd had that light bulb moment to go for it because you were 23 at the time. Do you know, the weird thing is, I think it took her a huge amount of courage. But as far as I was concerned there was no possibility I'd fail because at that age, you know, you just don't think about things like that. Obviously, you know, looking back on it now, I think, well, that that was mad, but and it was mad for her to do it. But it was a huge testament to her faith in what I was doing. What was it that you th- think she saw Chantal in you? Because you, you, your words were, you had little no- knowledge, but a dangerous passion for chocolate. <laughs> Did she see Um, that in her daughter? Yeah, I think so. I think she could see I was an unstoppable force. And obviously, you know, the climate at that time in business was completely different. There were no sort of guarantee loan schemes and things. And it wasn't very friendly to entrepreneurs. And they didn't expect young women who just graduated to come along and say, I'm going to set up a chocolate shop. Mm. And the name Rococo. Tell me, where did that come from? Again, it just pinged into my head. In fact, I did a small business course where we had three weeks in the classroom. I learned how to to make a spreadsheet and do a little marketing plan. And at the end of this, I had my 10-page document ready to take to the bank. But while we were doing various little exercises in the class and presentations, and they all said, so, okay, what's the business going to be called? And I said, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't possibly tell you. <laughs> I was being very <laughs> coy and secretive about the name, which, in fact, the name I had wanted to call it was Divine, which, as you know, was made into a chocolate name much, much later. But Yes, it was. So they pushed me and pushed me and said, just um, make something up, for God's sake, just for the purpose of this exercise. <laughs> we just need a name. So literally pinged into my head the name Rococo. And I'd heard Robert Robinson on the quiz thing smugly saying something was Rococo. And I thought that's a great word. So it literally pinged into my head and I said Rococo. And they all went, 
oh my God, it's brilliant. You have to use it. <laughs> so people procrastinate forever on a name. You know, this is the thing. And I remember I always talk about Julie Dean, my first podcast guest here and you know, she wanted to make satchels. She was from Cambridge. It's called the Cambridge Satchel Company. You know, not on the high street was, again, something along those lines. We kept on saying it's all about what's not on the high street. And so we called it not on the high street. Away from names, I speak to founders from all sorts of businesses, and they often talk about naivety at the beginning being a blessing. And I can definitely say after over 170 guests, I would say that actually... That's what I would say makes a magical brand is the naivety of the founder to go exploring with no constraints, with with almost the fact they don't know it is the equation that makes the magic. That's a really, really good uh, observation and absolutely um, chimes with me. And And then with that name, Rococo, I went and looked it up in a dictionary. And when I looked up the definition, it was just perfect because it said named after the word rocaille in French, which means shell and scroll work from the 18th century and florid to the point of bad taste. And I thought, well, that asymmetric was another description. I thought that is just like a fantastic blank canvas. I can do anything I want with that. I mean, look at that. I mean, it could have said anything, couldn't it? It could have said, you know, a part used for pl- by plumbers, but it didn't. Because <laughs> that would have been disastrous if it did. Mm. <laughs> I mean, when we, we, we talk to small businesses and they're dreaming of starting, the thing I would say to anybody when listening just to the, even this part of the podcast is if you've got, and I'm going to read it again, a little knowledge and a dangerous passion. And in your case, Chantal, it's for chocolate, but for other people, you know, a little knowledge, but dangerous passion for whatever it is, you've just got to go for it. You've just got to seize that moment and almost remember naivety is the equation that creates the magic. Going back to you now, Rococo, we now know the dictionary has given you permission to go on this magical journey. Your shop was beautiful. It was enchanting space right from the start. It was based on the King's Road in London. The shop was painted pink to match your hair at the time. And the ceiling was painted with cherubs and you had this sugar chandelier. Tell me about these early days. Did you know you had to have a shop? Was the actual chandelier edible? At that time, I didn't think there was any other way of, of doing the business apart from having a shop because yeah. that's what people did, you know, the nation of shopkeepers. Yes. And the sugar chandelier was edible. It was made from actual sugar lumps but formed into these round balls, which were the beads of the chandelier. And obviously they were mounted on metal fixings, but um, wow. you could have licked it or eaten it, but it was quite <laughs> high up, luckily. <laughs> And so tell me, how did you feel that? And did you did you ever look back? Did it just come to you naturally that this is what Rococo was? I think at the beginning, it was almost like the kids in the candy store. We were kind of playing with it. Although having said that, there was a, a serious side and I used to you know, do my VAT returns and my orders and everything, you know, I was quite diligent about that. And I did 
every job in the shop from cleaning the loo to not literally going to serve a customer, but everything. At the, the beginning, my younger sister and brother came to help me. So it was the kids working together. And we had a lot of fun. And the first few weeks, people would come in and go, so it was three weeks before Easter that we actually opened. In fact, it's coming up for 40 years tomorrow. Oh, my goodness. But people would come in and say, so what's this shop going to be after Easter? What are you going to sell? <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, that's really weird. You know, surely if you're a chocolate shop, that's what you sell all the year round. But I think they thought maybe it would become an antique shop or something different. And possibly that kind of pop-up model might have been a good thing to have done something completely different for, for six months. But but we carried on. And obviously in a hot summer, it's a, a disaster as far as chocolate's mm. concerned. I hear that the shop was positioned just close to Vivian Westwood's shop. So you were visited from anyone from local punks to old school Chelsea artists, as well as tourists, as well as famous people. And that you had this eye for detail. As you said, you did everything in there. But I'm, I'm thinking back to the scroll as part of the name of Rococo. You hand wrote mm. all the labels yourself using a dip pen. And this was this brand you were creating. Did you know that the details were important then? I knew it in my heart. I might not have articulated it intellectually. But yes, I did. I did know those things were important and particularly in those teenage years I was going to places like France and you know the way they do things there is it's much more handmade and you've got these lovely handwritten things on menus and you know it's very quirky so I kind of channeled that and in, in fact I've heard that neuroscientists have worked out that if something is not in very clear type but it's more cursive or written in a way that it's not quite so easy to decode people will look at it much harder and it will make a bigger impression on them. Nice marketing tip there. <laughs> <laughs> I completely agree. And and you're creating this brand. You instinctively knew what you were doing was right. And this is going back to this part, isn't it? This This gut instinct, this belief, this naivety. Was it no one else running an independent retail outlet exclusively selling chocolates or were you one of the first? There were other people, but they were very dusty old brands that had been around for hundreds of years. And, right. you know, flock wallpaper and brown interiors and it just wasn't exciting. And normally chocolates in those days were sold in department stores as well. So you either had yes, the yeah. chocolate company coming through, as you said, like my father's father was a chocolatier, they're coming through. But you were this new kid on the block. And maybe you could give some advice about this to anyone listening who want to turn that passion into a business. The importance of DNA, because really it was Chantel, wasn't it? who created that word, looked at the description, had the handwriting, understood the influences, put an edible, lickable chandelier on the roof. It's so important, isn't it, in our brands that our personal DNA is in it? It is. And I think at the time, I wasn't thinking about that. And no one was stopping me as well. And anyone who did, you know, 
from just before I opened it and things were saying, don't you think this is not a very good idea? (laughs) Why are you doing it? I'd just laugh it off and carry on. And so do you believe that when you look at brands that you like, that you can see founders' DNA in things? I'm just trying to get to the point where a lot of people that are listening here don't necessarily think that they're actually important to the idea. They're more the conductor of the idea rather than being intrinsically part of it. I think they are absolutely intrinsically part of it. And I think it's not just about the look and the feel either. It's about the way you make people feel and the way your teams work together and all of those things. That's what people perceive when they walk into a shop because something is beckoning them. And it's almost you are beckoning them. It's your DNA beckoning them, so to speak. In those early days, your chocolates were manufactured in Belgium and France before you started making your own chocolates. And it came sort of a time where you were becoming involved now in the industry as a whole. And you set up the Chocolate Society and became the founder of the campaign for real chocolate. You were sort of leading you know, with your flags, the chocolate revolution. I love this thought of you. And it would have been in a scrolled writing. You had an emotional connection with chocolate, but you wanted to share and educate others because you could have just not done that. What was it that made you take it and build even more depth in your brand? I guess after a few years, you realise that there are different ways of doing it. And I wasn't trained as a chocolate maker. I'm an artist, really, and a designer. And then traveling and seeing what people are doing and realizing that in places like France or Belgium, they're, you know, making small batches of chocolate or even grinding the beans. And then I compared that to what was happening in the UK, which was essentially the industrial revolution model of making food as cheaply as possible. So you ended up with very sugary confectionery, which didn't really deserve the name of chocolate. Mm. So that's when I started campaigning. And then I was one of the founders of the Academy of Chocolate, again, to try and get people to look a bit further than the outside of the box to look at the label and understand where the chocolate was coming from. So I suppose I've been teaching myself from the the day I opened, and I still am actually, because there's, there's always another challenge around the corner and another thing to discover. Each episode, I hand over this part of the podcast over to our brilliant partners at Dell Technologies, who this week have been joined by Intel. They know how tough things are out there right now. So they're giving six lucky winners the opportunity to win a brand new Dell XPS 13 laptop and a whole host of small business goodies to help your business thrive, worth over a £1,000. All you need to do is head over to holly.co forward slash Dell. Complete a short form, which I promise you will take just a couple of minutes and enter to be in with a chance to win. It's really as simple as that. You only need to enter once. The competition will run for six weeks before six lucky winners are selected. Full terms and conditions are available at holly.co. Good luck. Now back to our conversation of inspiration. 
What is the average chocolate full of that we don't realise? Well, it's full of a lot of vitamins and minerals. It's got something called theobromine, which is similar to caffeine, but it's about one molecule different. So it doesn't give you that kind of wiry buzz that coffee does, but it does actually stimulate the blood vessels and the brain and the nervous system and it releases serotonin. So it gives you that really feel good factor. And medically speaking, it's been proved to be good for the heart and the circulation. And there are many, many studies about that. But they do say keep away from the milk and the sugar. So if you can have dark chocolate, a little bit of sugar is okay, but it should be more more cocoa than sugar. More cocoa. Loads of people are thinking this. When you get those percentages, you know, tell me what percentage plus that we need to go from. I'm afraid it's a bit misleading, actually, because you can get a really poor quality chocolate with a very high percentage, and then you can get a really amazing chocolate that might have, say, 60 or 65%. So a lot of it is about the origin of the beans and the way the chocolate's been made. So if you think of it more like wine, yep. would you go and buy a bottle of wine and, and the only thing that will make you buy it is the amount of alcohol on the label? No, yes. Yeah, you wouldn't. You wouldn't do that. You would be looking for a particular grape or grower or country. So I think that's where we're going with chocolate, but we're taking a long time to get there. Gosh, we are taking a long time to get there. But we've got to remember when you were doing this, you know, it's not today that you were doing this. How was that information received? Because I remember speaking to Joe Fairley, founder of Green and Blacks, and when she spoke and said that British people would never eat dark chocolate. She's right. They didn't eat dark chocolate because what was available at that time, although strangely, it was very, very sugary. It was only about 20% cocoa. The cocoa that was being used was being roast till it was black and then a whole load of sugar put into it and artificial vanilla. So, so you've got this horrible experience of burnt and bitter and very sweet at the same time. Um, but if you went abroad to France or Belgium or Switzerland, you might taste something, you know, the kids would eat a baguette with a little piece of dark chocolate in and love it. So... It's a big mm. cultural thing, I think. It is a cultural thing. And how then did the UK receive your information when you're talking about these the sort of attitudinal change that we should, did they receive it well or was it just dairy milk all the way? Well, obviously there were people who were diehard dairy milk people and I used to love dairy milk, don't get me wrong, but there are other other brands out there. But the people actually I found the most difficult and who used to try and nobble me were the sugar industry, who mm. really didn't like the message I was giving about the fact that sugar was not a healthy thing. We didn't need to have so much of it. And I would get these weird letters from people kind of telling me to back off. <laughs> of course, I didn't take any notice. Really? So they were paying attention to what you were saying. Yeah. I mean, there's a huge lobby for those industries and I was getting PR. They didn't like it. The business was taking off quickly. Both locals and celebrities alike were loving what you were doing and your gorgeous creations. The business was flying. And in 2018, you had five stores across London and it was an award-winning luxury chocolate business. So 
This is good. This is going great guns. But I know the next part of your story is an incredibly difficult one. And before we started recording, I just asked you if you were going to be comfortable talking about it. And the reason I did was because it is painful to share, but it's something I feel and I shared with you that not many people share what can happen when someone wants to take away your company. And I would love if you felt comfortable to tell us the story. I suppose the nature of the business being very seasonal meant that we always had cash flow dips and highs and lows. And every summer we'd get to this low point. And I thought, you know, maybe it is time with five shops, we need to jump to the next point. And someone approached me with a letter saying, you know, I've been a big fan of yours. I think this business could really go places. And I met him and he was a very highly qualified with degree in economics from Cambridge and a Harvard Business School. And he was working as a trustee on a very big charity. So that, in a way, hoodwinked me a bit. I thought, you know, he must yep. be a good guy. And very, very charming. Anyway, for, for the first few months, you know, it all seemed to be going reasonably well. But one of his conditions was, was that he was going to be the CEO and the chairman and basically be allowed to make all the decisions. So I was sidelined. And that became increasingly uncomfortable. And as I could see that the things he was doing, the amount of money he was spending on crazy things was taking the business into a really dangerous waters. And shortly after that, he had tried to negotiate to buy out my shares for a ridiculously small amount of money. And I just stood my ground. I thought, well, why am I going to let someone take away my business that I've spent 36 years working on? Um, but anyway, he managed to, to wrestle it off me because he just wanted complete control. And the only way he could do that was by taking the business off the edge of a cliff. And if you like, it's a little bit like I had a, an old vintage car, which I spent years and years doing up every single nut and bolt till it was absolutely in pristine condition. And he took the keys and drove it off the cliff. And then you know, turned around and said, well, you can sort it out if you want, or we're going to administration. But that was it. Thank you so much for sharing that. As you said, 36 years of your work, a lifetime's work. When you brought him on, did you believe that you've got five stores now? We call it the imposter syndrome nowadays. You know, was there a level where you went, mm, this, is, this is getting a bit serious. I think I need to bolster the business part of my company. I feel I need some help. I only ask you these things because I want to get into this because those listening now, I can't tell you the amount of times I hear about people bringing the external world into their small businesses, thinking that they must know better, handing over the keys to the kingdom, so to speak, because they feel safe. And somehow, like what you're saying, your instinct, what you were seeing, it was going wrong. What was that initial reason that you felt you needed him? Well, it, it was literally a financial imperative because if we were going to grow, 
we need a cash injection. And otherwise, we were, were going to go backwards. And, you know, at that time, the choice was to be a company turning over, you know, between three and four million or to, to go jump up to the next step of about 10 million and be a serious player. Yeah. I didn't feel I had that skill set. And I, I still wouldn't claim that was my skill set. I'm the creative person, but I thought with the right, really good business brains and financial brains, it could be possible. And yet, I, I read a, a, a book and they call them the plausible idiots. They walk in with a suit and tie, if you can imagine. But on the back, if you looked at the back, they're in a clown suit. Mm-hmm. And that's always stuck in my mind that this is what this gentleman did. And did you feel that you had, didn't have support out there? Did you feel like you were alone in this situation, that he was car crashing your company and you didn't have anywhere to turn? Well, it was extremely difficult. And we did have lawyers and I really, really fought. I did everything I could to to keep the company. But I have to say the lawyers did not cover themselves in glory. Um, all of the questions that I was asking them and things, you know, they just go, oh, no, you can't do that. You can't do that. Sorry. It's the way the paperwork had been done. He was very, very clever. And and plus, this is a really critical bit. The amount of money he'd invested was pathetic. So clearly, he could spend that very, very fast and then be getting into debt. So if, if he had come in and injected a proper amount of money into the business and really wanted it to succeed, it I'm sure it would have done. But it was a kind of mechanism, I think. And what I'm amazed at is that the lawyers didn't see through it. And again, it's a little bit, you know, boys getting together and, you know, he's a good chap, isn't he? And you're maybe a bit of a stupid woman. You've got yourself into yep. a bit of a tangle here and, you know, too bad. Yeah. So although... At the same time, I had amazing friends and family and people backing me up to the hilt. But ultimately, it wasn't to be. And actually, in many ways, I'm glad I didn't keep hold of it because who knew what was around the corner? No, I can imagine. And Chantal, I shared with you that I've been through my own uh, issues where things were taken away and the unfairness and actually the lack of business sense. I mean, forget the emotional side of all of this, just the lack of business sense to take founders out of a business and then tank it. And in your case, it was meant to be tanked. In my case, it wasn't. They thought it was a better idea. Tell me how that made you feel because you put your life into something like this. Someone's taking it away. So it's almost undescribable. I mean, I, I, I likened it to grief, actually. Yes, yes. I felt sheer grief. Well, I felt that I'd been violated, actually. I, yeah, that me too. The trust yeah. I'd given had been completely breached and I'd been sacrificed in the most brutal way. I mean, if there's a me too in business, it's that kind of experience. Maybe one day, Chantel, there should be a Me Too in business, I have to say, because I think the word violated and sacrificed, these aren't exaggerated words. These are the words that so many women feel when things like this happen. 
And I'm so sorry to hear that that happened to you. And this all happened that the sort of fallout, so to speak, was all during the pandemic, which I can also imagine then just made it exponentially worse. Well, in some ways, yes, in some ways, no, because actually it happened in the May before 2019. So pandemic didn't really kick until the March the next year. So I'd had a, a lot of time to get used to my world crashing around me. So in a way, I suppose by that point, having the lockdown and everything else, it didn't seem quite so catastrophic because Mm. I'd already come through something which was pretty mega. I was finding my kind of sweet places again, my happy places and doing, trying to look after myself and being really well supported by my immediate family and friends. So I put in lots of very good daily routines and I really recommend this to everyone. So daily exercises, which for me is 10 or 15 minutes of something called foundation training. What's foundation training? Well, it's an American thing. Someone called Dr. Eric Goodman and he trains as a chiropractor, but he damaged his own back very badly and he was told to have surgery he refused to have it because he said, you know, I'm supposed to be healing people. He worked out a system which is biomechanics, but it's a bit like Pilates yoga, um, a lot of breath work. And it, you know, makes you very strong and flexible. So that's, I'd been doing that for years and years anyway. And then we inherited a small black cat from a dear friend who was a godmother. And she was very sick and she said, you have to take this cat. And this cat insisted on every morning, still does, sitting on my knee for at least 10 minutes. Or if I didn't, she'd make my life hell. So I'd have to sit and have my mindfulness with a cat. And that's all before I started my day. So What's the cat called? She has various names. Um, Sally or Lella. I call her Lella. Lella, gosh. It's like the universe sent you, Lella, just to yes. allow you just to touch. And I know she's on your lap right now. Mm. And and I really do empathise with the ability for you to heal during that lockdown, for you to start to concentrate on the insides. I know Renee was talking about Planet Organic when she also went through her own trauma with the business being taken away from her the physical effect it had on her, the actual health and how she had to restore it because she was in battle every day, emotionally and practically, and what that would take out of you and how it's so imperative. And as you said, you're building yourself back up. Tell me then what gave you that little light again? What inspired you to go back to what must have felt, and I felt it myself, that they took, they didn't just take a business away from you, they took your love away from you. How did you feel that courage to come back to it? Well, there were two different things. The first one was a really dear friend who we would always take a lot of chocolate for his Christmas party, which was like chocolate bark in different flavours, and he would have it spread out on a table and people come and help themselves and take it home with them and he said 
you have to make chocolate for me this Christmas. Now, of course, I wasn't the one who's actually making the chocolate before we had chocolate makers. I didn't have the equipment. I did know how to do it, but I wasn't really convinced I was capable. And he literally forced me to do it. So it's like getting back on the horse. So I did that for him. But the other funny thing, which I know you're going to talk about later, but I had chocolate coming from Grenada, which we haven't even talked about. But um, one of my really big passion projects is a chocolate company in Grenada where they're creating tree-to-bar chocolate and one of the first in the, in the world. So before Rococo went pear-shaped, a whole load of chocolate was put onto a sailboat in Grenada. It hadn't actually been paid for and nor had the sailing company. So that was kind of on the high seas. And I thought, what can I do to rescue this? First of all, I'll pay for the chocolate. Secondly, I'll pay for the the shipping. And then we'll do something with it. And that turned into the sailboat chocolate for Fortnum's. We all know that we are in a climate emergency and I don't know about you, but as a single human, the huge task at hand can feel overwhelming. Ultimately, we know that fundamental change will only be made by voting with our money, supporting the businesses leading change and ensuring that we are buying products mindfully. It's why I'm so proud to partner with Avon. Sustainability sits at the heart of their strategy. They are making progress on their ambitious target to make all of their packaging recyclable, reusable or compostable by 2030, as well as working towards more renewable and natural ingredients and biodegradable formulas for their beauty products. They've committed, and this is staggering, to full traceability and or certification of all of their critical supply chains by 2025. No mean feat when you're operating in 68 countries. If you'd like to learn more about Avon or doing beauty your own way by building your very own business as an Avon rep, whether that's selling online or face-to-face, head over to holly.co forward slash Avon. Now, back to our conversation of inspiration. I actually feel emotional even talking to you about it. The thought of you being in a kitchen making chocolate, going through the pain you'd been through, having to, to having to walk again. You know, it really is like that. Having to take a step forward each day, however you feel when you wake up, whatever battle you've got to go through, literally living and actually breathing and, and putting this life into what now was becoming the chocolate detective. Doing it all a second time round, being a bit older and wiser. And again, I'm sort of empathising enormously with you because I got back on the saddle again seven years ago. Your wealth of experience. Do you have now different sort of aspirations for yourself and your business with The Chocolate Detective? I absolutely do. I think it, it gives you a chance to really look very, very hard and deep into your soul and to think, you know, what actually is my purpose here? We're not here for very long on this planet. And what do you want to be remembered for? So I think it's all those those things, you know, the really 
amazing bits of the chocolate. It's not about the money and the business. It's about making connections with the cocoa farmers, empowering them, creating these local economies, disrupting that system globally. I mean, in a tiny, tiny way, but just making people think differently about chocolate. So with this love in the chocolate detective, and as you said, it's you were touching on it before, all about the transparency and the origin of chocolate. And you invested in the Grenada Chocolate Company based on the island of Grenada to ensure that. And I was looking at your Instagram of you on the cocoa farms in Grenada. And that must have been a real moment to go back to the source. Well, it was fantastic to be there because we hadn't been there since before the pandemic and we've been connected very closely with the island of Grenada and the chocolate there for what's well, almost 20 years now and I was first taken there by an inspirational man called Mott Green who's a chocolate activist and his whole ethos was to turn the chocolate business model on its head so you know, invert the triangle, get the power back to the roots, get the cocoa farmers understanding what needed to be done to turn that commodity into chocolate and to keep all of the value there on the island. He, very sadly, is no longer with us. He accidentally died. But, you know, his, his spirit lives on and he's there, you know, as a guiding force. And this is all about fair trade, obviously, and how this sort of misconception also about what fair trade means, the way that we read it and how chocolate can be slave free. And it's not spoken enough about. Tell me about this word fair trade and it involves slavery. I think it's such a huge topic. You could talk about it for an hour all by itself, but technically, and it's very technical, you can get X number of cocoa beans, which are fair trade, whatever that means, and you can mix it in with beans that come from anywhere. And it's called mass balancing. And that falls into the right category for the label to be called fair trade. And I know Mott hated the the fair trade thing because he said the fair trade organization you know the biggest one is in san francisco and a lot of people sitting in their air-conditioned offices making a lot of money issuing the certifications and that he didn't feel it was really getting back in a meaningful way to the growers and isn't it funny as society we're so busy we're so desperate for someone to label things that we just know we just know that if i do this if i work with this brand if i buy this brand if i read this label that says fair trade i just really hope that that means it is you know that's what we expect isn't it do you think that this is changing it's absolutely definitely changing and some of the big companies that i used to work with particularly with the Academy of Chocolate, we put gentle pressure on them to be more transparent, to do better work. And this one in particular actually started employing people on the ground in Africa and building these whole communities around chocolate and trying to demonstrate best practice and directly buying the beans rather than working through the commodity market. So they had traceability. So that's the best kind of model. And it is happening. 
But there are still child labourers. There are still some slaves. It's very difficult when you're in a, an area of conflict like West Africa and you've got child soldiers and leaky borders and people who don't actually have an identity. They don't have birth certificate, a passport. They don't have the same human rights as we would expect them to in this part of the world. It's fascinating. And again, in this podcast, we've learned about milk. We've learned about chocolate. We've learned about our vegetables. We've learned about the soil. We've learned about our food, our meat, our children and what they eat. It's one of the reasons I love to do this podcast because I just feel that we're all getting the truth where we can't actually look at the food industries and we can't look at the governments, but we can talk to people like you and actually learn the truth. And before we come to this end, I read this Bean to Bar project, which was the chocolate detective sort of startup point. And it was this shipment of 99% emissions-free chocolate. Could you just do us the honour of just telling us, because it feels like a, it feels like a story again, you know? The chocolate itself sailed across the Atlantic Ocean and it went all the way to Holland. And then it had to be brought back in another sailing boat, which came from Sweden and it picked up the chocolate, went all the way round to Carlingford Loch, which is between Northern and Southern Ireland. On the loch, the beautiful sailing ship moored and some little Irish coracles went to unload the chocolate. And then as it was rowed ashore, it was put onto a horse and cart and taken to the factory. It's called Nary Nogs and it's a bean-to-bar chocolate factory with solar power. So after that, they melted down these huge lumps of chocolate, created beautiful thin shards of chocolate and packaged them up. And then they set off back to the UK on electric trucks. So they arrived in London, 99% carbon free. Amazing. And what was it called, the chocolate at Fortnum? It was called Sailboat Chocolate and it was working with Fortnum and Mason and it wouldn't have been possible to do it without them. It was a, a wonderful project. What a story. What a story is that? It's just been just such an honour. And I'm so thankful that you really did take me through the highs and lows of, of your journey. And I actually end this podcast, as you might know, talking about the highs and lows, talking about the adventure of your last 40 years being like a roller coaster. Can I ask what you would consider to be the lowest point in your journey? Is there a moment, a day? Yes, there is a day, yeah. That was the 19th of May, 2019, when I was in the business court and the company was put into administration. How was that moment for you? It was, um, I just felt like I'd lost everything. I couldn't describe it really. I didn't collapse in a heap, but inside, that's that's what I was doing. Exactly what you did. Yeah. All too close. Um, and conversely, the greatest high for you? I think in terms of the business, it would be when I took my mother and my mother-in-law and James to Buckingham Palace to receive the honour from Prince William. What a moment. What a moment is that? 
And where do you hold your medal? It's actually in a drawer. I should probably have it on the wall somewhere. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know if you if you got the same with your MBE, but there, there's quite a big medal that they pin on you in the palace, yes. and then you can get a little baby version. So on those rare rare occasions when you get an invitation, the dress code says medals. <laughs> you can put your medal on. <laughs> I keep mine in a, I actually have a a box that I remember from my childhood. It's a very special box and in it is my medal. And sometimes I just forget. And then I will go to get the fax, you know, fax paper. What century am I in? Sorry, the paper for the <laughs> printer. And I open that box and I think, oh my gosh, I've got a medal. And I get it out. I go and show Frank listen, I've got a medal. He goes, yes, I know. I know. And then it goes back in the box again. <laughs> so I think we need to get it out. But you've got an OBE. Of course you do, because you're a magnificent woman. And I, I've got a hunch that we're going to see so much more of the chocolate detective, but we're just going to see so much more of you. Because I think that young lady with all that soul and grit and resilience, and she's here still. And I hope a light gets shone on you further. Can I ask you, Chantal, to read your letter to your younger self? Oh, gosh, I must say it was one of the most difficult things I've ever had to do. And I've covered a lot of ground, which you have already talked about. That's no problem. We're going to just love hearing it again. Okay, well, here we go. Dear me, you're a dreamy, artistic child. You love fairy tales, music, nature, and especially cats. One thing I might say is that you're a little oversensitive. You're frequently told, don't take it to heart. You'll be encouraged to draw, paint, make things, and explore. When it comes to food, you've always been a very fussy eater and have a highly developed sense of taste and smell. You have a curious mind. You're always asking lots of questions and doing experiments with your siblings. You test the laws of gravity by trying to walk on lily pads with predictable results. Everyone thinks you fell accidentally into the pool when you're scooped out. You don't let on. You and your sister managed to let the handbrake off the family car and crash it at the bottom of a hill, expecting to be in big trouble. You're will be amazed not to be told off. Instead, your parents are so happy that you weren't hurt. You love making things. You enjoy solving problems. And some people say you're a lateral thinker. You don't know that you're dyslexic, as this isn't really a thing in the 1960s. Your creativity is the flip side of this coin. You'll find that some academic work is more of a challenge than people expect especially when it comes to maths and reading small print. In your adult life, this will translate into legal contracts, which literally swim in front of your eyes. You'll keep persevering, especially with your handwriting, which isn't very good at the moment, but it will become one of your biggest assets. In fact, one of the cornerstones of the brand that you'll create. And by the way, you'll find an unexpected friend in a thing called Spellcheck which can make helpful suggestions in a non-judgmental way. You'll surprise yourself at how incredibly hard you'll work, although right now you might be accused of being 
in your own little world or even a bit lazy. As a middle of five children, you'll sometimes feel yourself buffeted between the eldest and youngest. And this can feel like you're getting the worst of both worlds. But don't worry, it gets better. The five of you make a sandwich with your two brothers as the bread on the outside and three sisters as the filling. As children, you outnumber your parents. In fact, you are a small tribe. Although it can be annoying to be part of such a large and very eccentric family, what you don't know is that they will be there to support you when the going gets tough. You're already well-travelled and excited by going to new places. You have a sense of adventure. Some might call it being out of your comfort zone. Nothing much really scares you and you have a certain precociousness. By the age of seven, you will have seen so many cultures and been to so many continents, you'll have heard different languages being spoken, from Iran, where you're born, to Brunei, Hong Kong, Ethiopia, Suez and the Mediterranean. When you return to London, you'll settle into this new life and go to the local primary school. You'll play in the woods with kids from the neighbourhood, or on cold days, you'll hang out in the Horniman Museum, which is just across the road. You're one of those wild children who run around barefoot, known as the Codys who don't wear shoes. It's a big change when your father's work takes the family from London to the Middle East, and you and your sisters are sent back to a convent boarding school in England. Although you'll be excited at the idea of going, it will be a huge shock. It's nothing like Mallory Towers. It's cold and bleak, and the food is terrible. You'll make lots of lifelong friends here, and together you'll battle against a system which is full of petty rules. You'll understand that these rules are actually great mechanisms to kick against, and may even save you from having to make much more dramatic and daring rebellions later in your life. You will encounter both cruel and kind nuns. Later, you'll understand that they had their own demons, and you might even feel sorry for them. At school, you'll develop your love of music. One of your idols is David Bowie in all his glory and with all his alter egos, and he will inspire you in so many ways. Your teenage years will have their challenges. Your father's quite strict, although your mother's very laid back. She even sends you parcels of chocolate. Freddo frogs, to be precise timed to arrive on the day when you're not allowed to go to the tuck shop. It's fair to say that chocolate has been something you've loved for as long as you can remember. What you don't know is that your father will die when you're 16, although your mother will go on to live a wonderful long life. She will be almost 95 when she dies. Crazy as it sounds, the pain of losing a parent at such a young age will make you strong and compassionate. Your siblings will all pull together and support your mother, who finds herself a widow with five children under the age of 20. You'll be surprised at the reserves of inner strength that you'll find and the enormous amount of love and support that you will receive from your family and your friends when you need it most. And you will learn to celebrate small things. You'll go to art college and study printmaking, photography, fashion and textiles. And these skills will be invaluable in your career. 
While you're an art student, you'll visit your dear friend from school, Nikki, who's working in Harrods, and you'll be offered a Saturday job selling chocolates. This is a dream come true and will change your life. Your first customer will be Michael Caine, although you don't recognise him. You'll have a light bulb moment, which will lead to you setting up your own chocolate shop, Rococo, in Chelsea, age 23. It's not any old chocolate shop. You're inspired by the world of magic and theatre, and you want to create an emotional experience that brings joy, which you have found sadly lacking in other British retail shops at this time. You're so ahead of the curve, it will take quite a long time to get the business to make a profit, but you will get there with dogged persistence. You can't afford for this business not to work because your mother has guaranteed your business start-up loan with the bank. She's put the house on the line, literally. It's a crazy risk she's taking, but she really believes in you and you will get those papers back to her and go on to provide your own home as security. Your teens and 20s will give you lots of opportunity to work hard and play hard. You meet so many amazing people, mostly creatives, who will help you along your path. You'll have some romantic flings and some more serious long-term relationships, but you won't meet the one until much later. He will appear out of the blue when you're least expecting it and will be there through thick and thin for 30 years and counting. You will marry James and have two beautiful children who become extraordinary humans that you will be so proud of. Money will not be your driving force. In fact, it's going to be your Achilles heel. More of that later. You'll meet an amazing activist called Mott Green who will become your inspiration and mentor with his work in Grenada where he turns the traditional colonial business model of growing cocoa on its head. The farmers will learn how to transform it into their raw materials, into the finest chocolate. They will capture all the value and keep it in the local economy. You will experience the shock and loss of losing him far too young, but you'll take away so much strength and positivity from everything he's shared with you. You'll understand that this has been a precious gift that you were lucky enough to have had 10 years working with him and such a close relationship. The lowest point will come when you get an investor and discover that this person really does not have your interests at heart. He wants complete control and will not stop until he gets it. You will lose the business that you worked so hard on for 36 years. The shock and pain are quite overwhelming. And then COVID-19 comes along. What you've been through will prepare you very well for this pandemic. You will actually find that they will take you to a much truer, deeper place and make you examine why you're here. You will literally climb mountains and plunge into valleys of darkness. You will come out on the other side and everything will be okay. You'll learn to appreciate having good daily routines, doing your exercises, cycling, walking, breathing and marvelling at the beautiful tiny things all around you 
will bring much joy. You'll learn the words of St Julian of Norwich. All shall be well, all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. Thank you. Oh, just going to take a second. Thank you for sharing that with us. As I said earlier, only until you've been through it do you actually understand the actual pain of something that you love so dearly being taken away so unfairly. And you being so open today, Chantal, with your story and using words like being sacrificed and the brutality of what many of us go through has really helped me, but it will help many other people. And I hope that this podcast is a lesson to anybody who thinks the plausible idiot is going to do better than the gifted grafter, the woman full of naivety and beauty and DNA. And that basically is you, the person who dreams up something. And I just, I just hope you keep dreaming because it's women like you that are inspirations for all of us listening. And thank you so much for your time today. Well, thank you, Holly, because you are also a huge inspiration. And I know that you've been through a very, very similar journey and you've turned it into something so incredibly positive. So thank you. Thank you for inviting me. If you've enjoyed this episode, if it's helped you along your journey or inspired you, would you mind rating and reviewing? Your support means the world to me. It really does spread the word and will help inspire even more people to build a life they love. And if you want to hear all our latest news, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter, Holly's Desk Notes, over at holly.co. 